Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. On the 31st of May, 1892, a posse formed in Port Jervis, New York. A young white woman claimed she was assaulted by a young black man. Robert Lewis became the prime suspect, but before any investigation took place or a trial, a mob lynched him. It was the only lynching in New York after the Civil War, and it's important for so many reasons, not least because it's been forgotten for several generations. Philip Dre, an author and historian, has resuscitated the story and brought it to bear on our times in his latest book, A Lynching at Port Jervis, Race and Reckoning in the Gilded Age. Phil is an acclaimed author, having written extensively on race relations and lynching. His 2003 book, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America, won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer. He's written about freedom riders in Mississippi, the history of Reconstruction, and labor relations. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you for having me. Well, I just wanted to start off by saying the book is beautifully written, even if the subject is ugly and offensive. I was just wondering, can you set the scene for us a little bit? Where is Port Jervis, and what was it like in the Gilded Age? Uh, Port Jervis is uh, it's at the place where Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York State meet along the Delaware River. Uh, and it was very much in its day in the late 19th century, it was a huge rail hub. Um, and originally, it had been a canal town for the coal industry, uh, but the Erie Railroad came in there in the mid-19th century, and they located their machine shops there. And so Port Jervis became this it was, I thought of it in a way as sort of the last jumping off point on the eastern seaboard for trains heading west. So you had something like 30 trains a day coming through Port Jervis, uh, going back and forth between points east and points west. Um, and so it was a very lively little burg. Uh, it had a huge kind of transient population of people connected with the railroad about a third of the people in town worked for the railroad in some way or another. Um, and it had, it was a sort of a bifurcated town. Last thing I'll say about it is it had a kind of a, a more fritified uptown aspect to it with people with nice homes and gardens, and then kind of the more ruffian railroad town down by the tracks and the river uh, where, you know, you might get into a brawl or whatever. And, 
the police would sort of guide, tell you to go home and, uh, you know, lead you home if you were, had a little too much to drink and so on. So it was that kind of town. It had a kind of a rough reputation in Western uh, New York, um, uh, but very much a lively uh, industrializing town in the typical of the late Gilded Age. Port Jervis had recently been very proud to install electric streetlights, one of the first communities in its area to do so. And so it had that kind of vibe of a place uh, seeing itself as modern. Yeah, it doesn't sound that dissimilar to other towns that would have had a depot on the train line or would have been an important cross section of the railroads. Uh, we're going to talk, obviously, about the town's only lynching and the only lynching in New York State. So I've got to ask you, what was it like for African-Americans in that community? You know, that whole community, the Hudson Valley was, of course, had a, a deep history of human enslavement. Um, back in the 18th century, it, it rivaled South Carolina in terms of the number of enslaved people working along the Hudson River towns in river commerce and so on. Port Jervis was somewhat on the western edge of that. Uh, but that legacy certainly persisted. Port Jervis itself had a very, at that time, had a very small black population, only about 200 people out of maybe nine or 10,000 total. Uh, a lot of them lived north of the town, uh, about a mile north in a little sort of a community or a, a kind of a settlement, really, along a reservoir. Um, and it's, when you walk it today, you sort of imagine what it was like for the domestic workers and people who every day had to basically commute into the town, walking from the settlement into the, the, the town itself. Um, that's where, until the late 19th century, most uh, local Black people lived. There were a few scattered elsewhere in the town, um, but it was, a t it was a town that hadn't seen a lot of racial violence or hostility. There was a very popular black baseball team, the Red Stockings, who won their, they tended to win a lot of their games. And so whites and blacks alike would show up at the park to watch them play and win and so on. And so it wasn't really uh, a place that was like riven by racial hostility. In any way, I don't think. It's an interesting, it's an interesting case though, the, 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 the town, because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons that we're going to get to, but as well as describing the town, I wonder if we can begin with the two of the the main characters at least anyway there's more more characters that are important but the story begins with lena mcmahon and phil foley who are these two characters well lena mcmahon was a young woman kind of they would call her the papers called her a, the bell of the town she was a young woman about 22 at that time in 1892 uh her family ran a sweet shop that she managed um right in the sort of main part of the city her father was a Union War veteran, like many, many people, men in the town were. Um, and her family was, you know, they were Catholic family. There's a huge Catholic church there still that the McMahons attended. Uh, they were seen, you know, they were a, liked, a much liked family. Um, Philip Foley had been a traveling insurance salesman, a very good looking man, apparently. And what they called the local people called him a ready talker. In other words, he was obviously kind of a bounder in some ways. Um, he and Lena hit it off enormously and entered into a kind of a, a very torrid courtship. Uh, at first, the, her family was kind of willing to ex accept him, but then it turned out that he had 
some criminal inclinations. He'd been kicked out of a hotel for non-payment and stuff. So they told her they didn't want her to see him anymore. So that kind of set the stage for this situation in which uh, she was undecided whether to run away with this man, whether to remain loyal to her family. Uh, she fell out with her own parents. And that kind of set the stage for this young couple to then be caught up in this kind of tense, what do we do now situation? And that's when the lynching occurred. Right. So it's the 31st of May, 1892. As you say, Lena and Phil step out. You mm -hmm. got to tell us what happens on this day and, and what happens on the following day as well. Well, they, uh, it's very, I mean, Lena herself was, a, a, she was a very beautiful young woman and very accomplished and smart. And of her, of the era, she was like a kind of a bold young woman, like of her age, a kind of a Gibson girl. She ran her own business, basically. Um, she had took it. She also was kind of a like to tell tall tales, basically. So it's very hard to know when she, she spins tales about herself. And of course, it's very vexing for the historian to try to figure out what exactly happened. Um, to make a short, long story short, she ran away from home. She fell out with her mother. The mother slapped her. Uh, she ran away to New York City, apparently, then came back. She reunited with Philip Foley, who had his own problems with the law, but was also trying to kind of stay with her. They wound up sort of camping out together in a wooded area near one of the river fronts. Um, they just they couldn't go back to her house. Uh, they really didn't have anywhere to go. Um, at that juncture, at one point, Philip left her alone by the riverside. Uh, it was the middle of the day. He was going to go check on her luggage or something and get something to eat. She claimed that she was assaulted by uh, a man, Robert Lewis, who was a well-known person in the town. He drove the local. He worked for the largest hotel in the town. As a teamster, he drove people back and forth at the train station. His own father had been a black a veteran of the Civil War who was very much liked in the town. So Robert Lewis was a young man, about 28 years old, well-known. Um, she claimed that he accosted her and they argued and that he wound up sexually assaulting her on the riverside. Um, that we uh, There are a couple of witnesses. That incident itself is kind of, it's not clear whether it really happened, whether they just had some kind of argument or even if Lena herself had somehow constructed a kind of charade of some sort in order to distract from her problems she was having with her family, we don't really know. But what did we do know is that word went out that he, Robert Lewis, had raped Lena McMahon. And a posse of young men, white men from Lena's neighborhood who knew her and were loyal to her, immediately set off in pursuit and captured him uh, about an hour and a half or two hours later um, going up the canal, basically leaving town on a, on a canal boat and brought him back, tried to bring him back to the town jail. Uh, but a large mob had formed there already on the word of this assault. And the police could not, they were not on it. The, the, the posse was unable to deliver him safely into the hands of the police. Uh, there was a huge uh, fight over it. Uh, Robert Lewis was borne away by the mob a hill uh, with the police sort of in pursuit, trying to still interfere with some other good Samaritans, a judge, a cleric, and so on. 
um, but unsuccessfully. And, and Robert Lewis was lynched before a crowd of about 2,000 people uh, out right on, on uh, Main Street. So it all transpired over the period of about two or three hours. Uh, it's what scholars of lynching call a spontaneous vigilantism. In other words, it wasn't plotted out or planned, but the populace arose in fury. You know, there were a couple of different dynamics. One was, of course, that a, a black person would sort of step out of bounds, so to speak. The other was, of course, that there was a kind of tension at the time that young white women like Lena were leaving home, disobeying their parents, doing as they wished. It was already kind of known in the town that she was defying, you know, the rules by seeing this kind of difficult, the, the traveling salesman and so on. So it was a very kind of, it was a, it was a melodrama already known to most of the town and they kind of seized on it as something that they would enforce, basically. That's the way it seemed to me. I mean, it's the way it reads, it's very clear in your your writing that there are struggles that the historian has here, um, especially with, you know, trying to recreate the events as they unfold, those two or three hours, as you say, he's on a barge, he's not really spooked when, when you know, people are, are, you know, trying to take him off the barge, or, you know, th there's also this moment when Lewis confesses, according to one of his captors, and says that yes. Foley instructed him to do it, and this is kind of this is kind of a really unusual, he says that it could be cleared up by Lena's father, John McMahon. So why are these right. statements, why does Lewis make these statements? Does he make the statements? And if so, then why are they, I mean, they're pretty curious, aren't they? Yes, they are. In fact, they argue a lot for either his innocence. I always thought the fact, for one thing, he has this whole day, he's been carrying around this all this fishing gear he has. And the fact that he still has it with him the, somehow the idea that he had, he had sexually assaulted a white woman and then is fleeing with a lot of fishing gear on a canal boat, which moves at about two miles an hour, drawn by a mule, seems like a very odd, for a historian of lynchings, it seems like very strange. Um, but these things you mentioned as well, his, his idea that Lena's father could clear everything up, what we don't really know, because of course, Robert Lewis didn't live to tell more of his side of the story, but it suggests that there was something going on. I suspect that what it was was that the three protagonists, Lena, Philip Foley, and Robert Lewis, knew each other. There's some evidence that they did, and that somehow they had cooked something up to create the impression of something, and that what Robert Lewis was doing there when he confessed was basically saying to his captors, You don't get it. This was all, this was not what you're perceiving is not real. It was all like a sham that we cooked up for some reason, which is sort of still unclear. But of course, as I read in the book, what all the characters realized too late was that the perception was much too large. It could not be controlled then. The once the town latched on to what it thought had happened, there was no kind of reeling it back in at all. And that... <laughs> And that's, of course, that is kind of what happened. And that's, I think, what Robert Lewis was trying to say. Like, oh, if you just talk to her dad, he'll explain that I'm really a good guy. We know each other. And that Lena has these flights of fancy or whatever it was, that there was some Michigas going on, basically. Again, this is, as you point out, it's very difficult for the historian. All of the information we have about this comes from the white-controlled newspapers in the town. 
This is a generation before the NAACP began investigating lynchings from the point of view of the black community. So all the information, reading the small town newspapers, of which there were three in Port Jervis, so there's a lot of coverage, but all of it kind of stops at the edge of, well, what really happened? And it's very frustrating as a historian, as I'm sure you can understand, to read an article that's full of detail about, which basically ends with them saying, the writer saying, we think there's something more to this, but we don't know what it is. End of story. You're like, no, no, go find out. But at, at that time and place, the police did not really conduct any investigation, so to speak. They were more just a constabulary who were there to kind of like police the saloons. They were not prepared to either control a lynch mob, definitely, or to investigate what had actually occurred and so on. So a lot of, yes, it's very frustrating. And a lot of the people took those secrets with them. And we'll just never, never know absolutely for sure what happened. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the investigation, you know, you're, you're, you point out that the Port Jervis police force is kind of incompetent, or if not, if not incompetent, they don't really have the uh, capacity or the, um, the, the, the willingness to investigate this much further, but private detectives enter the story later. What, what, what do they turn up about the lynching? There was this one man in particular, a private detective. It's funny because they make a very good point, which is these, especially these rural communities. In those days, really only, it was like large cities like New York City were only beginning then to kind of have like detectives and so on. A small place like Port Jervis, the police force consisted of basically moonlighting people who were dentists, butchers, railroad workers, who just wanted to look for $5 extra a month to kind of patrol the, the streets late at night or something. They were not prepared to investigate, really. Um, that role was filled, though. There were private detectives, uh, people who would align themselves with all kinds of both good and bad forces um, and who themselves lived kind of sketchy lives, like staying in shabby hotels and occasionally winding up on the wrong side of the law and so forth. And so there were theories put forward. And the most prominent was a man, a uh, detective, who believed he claimed that uh, he was one of the voices that claimed very strongly that Robert Lewis knew both of these people, both that he had actually even maybe helped work to them, like exchanging messages for them. Remember that the family of Lena McMahon at one point forbade Philip Foley from coming around again. And so the two lovers would communicate by having other people deliver secret you know, messages to them um, and that Robert Lewis may have been one of those people. We don't know, but that was what the private detective uh, uh, insisted on. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, so there's this whole scene that you actually portray really richly in the book about Lena wanting to get her bags back from her parents and sort of leaving with Phil Philip Foley and uh, and that 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 might be where Robert Lewis uh, comes into the story. How does Lewis's lynching, you think, fit into the the broader context context of national politics at the time and and the anti lynching movement as well? No, it's incredible. It's actually the timing is so precise as to be down virtually to the very day. Um, just at the end of May, there had been a large national memorial against lynching, which included the president of the United States and various other dignitaries. Um, at that same, this peak, this year, 1892, is the peak of lynching, what they call the Southern Scourge, lynching across the South of African-Americans. Um, Almost every other day, there was a lynching of an African-American in the South. And, you know, if you go back to those years, almost any in newspapers in America, there's almost always the report of a lynching in the day's news somewhere. It's a rising a little bit of like mass shootings today, the way we have this terroristic thing of mass a shooting. It's hard to open a newspaper and not find some account of a mass shooting. And it was a little bit the same then. It was like there was always because the press. There was coverage of lynchings was very popular, both the build up to one, the search for somebody, what actually happened, the aftermath and so on. The coverage was extensive. Um, and so there was almost always stories of it running, which in one case, I think, in, in a certain sense, I think may have influenced the Port Jervis mob because any by that point, anyone reading newspapers would almost have had a kind of a an education, so to speak, in Southern lynchings how they happened. And so in a way, I think they could have been partly emulating what they'd been reading about in the newspaper and thinking, well, this this same issue has arisen here and we now we will know what to do and so on. And of course, in the context of what that moment, uh, what was what was key was that the lynchings did not occur theoretically in this part of the world. And Port Jervis is only 65 miles from New York City. So, of course, the outrage in, across the country, really, was that this southern scourge of lynching was moving, that it was going elsewhere in the country, it was coming north, and that this was the indication. Port Jervis, it's right there. It's, as I said, because of the huge rail hub, it still is the last stop on the New Jersey suburban train. It's where the suburbs end, basically. So it was almost part of greater New York City. This idea that this same kind of it was it was a southern lynching in fact the headlines even said southern methods outdone 
Uh, one paper said Port Jervis has unsectionalized the crime of lynching. And that was kind of the vibe in the whole country. At that time, if you mentioned the words Port Jervis almost anywhere in America, just like later in our time, names like Birmingham or such Selma meant something. It was the same kind of thing. It stood for a kind of intolerance. Um, and so that's really where that's it sort of blew up as a huge national story. Not only the crime itself, but then the inability of the community, despite its many promises, to actually bring the lynch mob to justice. In other words, that the 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 nor the courts in New York State, of course, immediately after the lynching said, well, unlike the South, we'll see that justice is done. No one, you can't get away with this up here. Well, of course, the exact same thing happened. Neighbor would not testify against neighbor. People were afraid. Basically, the locals wind up making almost like a, a sort of lampooning the local judicial <laughs> system and 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 laugh them out of court. And never, no one ever really was. So the coroner wound up using the exact same words as the verdict for what had happened to Robert Lewis, that he had died, quote, at the hands of persons unknown, which was the euphemism used broadly across the country at that time for the community sort of coming together in silence around a lynching. It's hard to believe that for all of its importance, it, it didn't, it hasn't gotten the same historical treatment that other lynchings have. And, and you say that Ida B. Wells was on top of this, though. I mean, I think most people that listen to this show will know who Ida B. Wells is. But how, I mean, for the, the sake for the, those that don't, perhaps, can you tell us about how she integrates with this story and how she, generally speaking, brings lynch, lynching to the to public consciousness? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I mean, she is one reason why the story did become somewhat better known, even in its day, because what it was, she was a woman from, uh, she'd been born into slavery in northern Mississippi. Uh, her parents had died, uh, leaving her the sole, like the sort of head of family of a large uh, family. She wound up moving to Memphis as a teacher, became a writer, and really emerged as one of the first uh, female Black journalists in America in the post-Civil War era. Um, but what happened is she began, it, it, initially she assumed that lynchings were valid in that, oh, this horrible scoundrel, this someone who committed this heinous crime perhaps deserved what happened. But when this became when it came close to her, um, she began to realize that this was, a, it was not what it appeared to be. She began investigating lynchings and then wrote about them in a Memphis newspaper, basically exposing that the charges of sexual assault were often either false or much embellished and made up. And that for, when she wrote this, however, um, she was condemned by local whites and basically chased out of Memphis. Her office was trashed and so on. She came to New York where she was welcomed by T. Thomas Fortune, who ran the editor of the New York Age, which was the, at that time the most prominent black newspaper in America. Knowing that she couldn't go home, he hired her to write about Southern lynching. Now, this is in June 1892, literally the same moment that the lynching in Fort Jervis occurred. So Ida B. Wells began that very month. She published a huge uh, special uh, article in the, the age about the Southern scourge, the, the, the Southern horror, she called it. And it went on. This was really the beginning of her anti-lynching crusade. 
which involved her writing several pamphlets, um, traveling around the world, basically, uh, to work toward this building up a crusade with, with the encouragement of Frederick Douglass, actually, as well, who himself was older and kind of not himself engaged in it, but he saw in her the person who would carry carry this forward. And so all this is happening in this one condensed month of June 1892. And that's why she herself called attention to the poor Jervis lynching um, and was one of the first people to suggest, really, she's the only Black voice we have commenting on it and saying that from her experience, what she saw was that she thought there might be a romantic relationship between Lena McMahon and Robert Lewis, or that somehow there was some, that's what it was. There was, maybe Philip Foley was involved as well. It was that there was a kind of a, a frustrated love uh, uh, story to it, and that this was what had brought this about. We, again, we don't know for sure, but her doing that and her writing about that did sort of give it more publicity. Absolutely. And of course, she goes on to be, you know, even a sort of bigger journalistic star burns even brighter into the as time goes on. There's another historical character that uh, scholars of the Gilded Age will know pretty well from this story. And that's Stephen Crane, the famous author, of course. Uh, he finds his way into this story. His family lived in Port Jervis and his father, you've already mentioned, you just said a judge had nearly earlier in the conversation, a judge nearly succeeded in thwarting the lynching of Robert Lewis. And that's that's Crane's father. So how did the events of 1892 affect a young Stephen Crane? No, it's great. Actually, it was his his that judge was his brother. Um, oh, his brother. OK, OK. The Crane, the Crane family was very large. And so they had children who were like Stephen Crane was the youngest. And so his older brother was like 20 years or something older than him. And kind of when the parents passed away, uh, the Crane's father had been a, a minister in Port Jervis. Uh, the older brother, William Crane, a prominent judge, then at, sort of in a way kind of adopted Stephen. Um, but Stephen Crane had been in Port Jervis prior to the lynching. And of course, he knew the town and probably some of the people involved himself. He was not present the day it occurred, but his brother, uh, the lynching occurred right across the street from the house at William Crane, very prominent part of town, Main Street. The house is still there, in fact. Uh, his maid came and told him that, oh, they're they're about to lynch someone across the street. William Crane ran out. Of course, he was a person who was very, he was known in the town, quite respected. He sought to use his influence to get the lynch, he he ran right into the midst of the mob and said, "Boys, you this is not good. You got to stop this right away." Well, of course, you know. Picture I always, ever since January sixth last year, I always say to people, "Imagine what we saw those videos that we've seen of the riot at the Capitol. If you ever want to see what how difficult what a mob is like, a violent mob intent on something, and how difficult it is to quell it." That gives you a sense of that. And so the efforts of William Crane and a couple of other people, a doctor, a, a clergyman and so on, were just they were basically told, get out of here or you're going to we're going to turn on you as well. And even the local police had like their batons taken out of their hands. They were some of them were beaten with their own baton. You know, it was a it was a very bloody scene. So William Crane, he emerged as kind of a hero. Um, uh, and Stephen Crane, of course, learned of this 
and began following the case. And later, he did write other, he, he himself wrote short stories involving Lynch-like, kind of like extrajudicial killings, summary justice. He seemed fascinated by it. It wound up with him, though, actually his last work before he died, very young Stephen Crane, was a, a novella called The Monster, set in Port Jervis, or a town like Port Jervis, in which it's sort of an allegory about a black man who is injured, terribly injured in a fire, saving a young white boy who is the son of his employer, and in so doing, though, is horribly scarred by an explosion of the doctor's, uh, the employer's chemical lab. And so then is, is alive, but is sort of hideous to behold in the town. And he, from having been this kind of hero who saved a young boy, he becomes this detested figure, this black man who no one wants around. And of course, all kinds of aspersions are cast in his direction, that he's a sexual deviant, that he's a literally a monster. And of course, what Crane is doing here is playing with this idea because monster was the term that was often used in lynching case reporting, the black monster, the brute, the monster. And so Crane is using that. Basically, what he's suggesting is that the real monster is not this deformed figure, but rather the, the town itself, the intolerance of the town, which returns on this man in rejection. It's a very powerful story. And Crane is a very um, kind of lyrical writer. And in this, this is his last work. And he really throws himself into the, the writing is very, a lot of the descriptions are very intense. Um, but it was an odd kind of postscript then to the Robert Louis lynching. Um, it took many generations for people to even notice the connection between the historical lynching of Robert Louis and this this novella, which actually, quite obviously, when you read it through that lens, it's so apparently about, there's even little cameos. Lena McMahon kind of appears as like an Irish girl who's frightened by the mom, you know, and so on. So, it's a very powerful story and interesting the way, as I say in the book, it's interesting how history sometimes can be reported, not in the ways we expect, but through through literature, really. Absolutely. I think it's a great it's a great addition to the story. It adds a lot of a lot to the legacy of the lynching and it's kind of ongoing uh, the way it reverberates throughout the years. And that's kind of what I want to get to now, because. The later half of the book really deals with how that does reverberate. Can, can you tell us what happens to all of these characters after the trials and tribulations? I mean, with Lena, with Phil, and then with Robert, is there any justice for Robert Lewis? Uh, sure. Well, really the only, there was, a, in those days, the coroner's inquest, you know, today we have like a medical examiner system, but it, at that time, the coroner wielded a lot of power in these small towns. And so the coroner's inquest, which unlike today, began just, you know, like a few days after the lynching, called together townspeople to have a kind of a, a hearing. Unfortunately, it was a kind of there was no cross-examination involved. And so you heard evidence, but then people were allowed to get up and refute that evidence and say, well, I wasn't really there. It wasn't me and so on. So basically the coroner's inquest. Really, even though they they understood, the people there, of course, understood, many of them knew who the ringleaders had been, 
it did not result in any it going on to a grand jury. No one was indicted. So um, perhaps the most interesting side drama was that William Crane, the judge, called out as one of the ringleaders of the mob, a young Harvard graduate who happened to be the son of the, the town's kind of leading jurist, uh, a man named Lewis Carr. And so Lewis Carr and was was horrified that here this the most humiliating awful thing that had ever occurred in this town his own son was one of the one of the actors in it he confronted william crane and like you know you can't do this to me and so on and so on so the kind of clash between these two legal titans in the town the two of the most respected men over the fate of his son um, and eventually they did kind of find a way to give the son like a sort of an off ramp, like they let him explain it in some way that maybe I didn't really say those things and so on. And eventually William Crane kind of let it go. But um, but basically, overall, the town sought to let this slip very readily into kind of a silence, which lasted for 130 years. It was very successful. What happened to the people? Um, Phil Foley was actually held in jail for a while, sometimes for his own protection because the, the crowd, the mob wanted to get at him as well. Um, but also the McMahon family at one point accused him of blackmailing Lena for money, which turned out to not, it did not really go anywhere, but it served to keep him locked up for several months. He eventually was bailed out by his family and left town and wisely never came back. Um, Lena, Lena's family, Lena herself wound up, her life did not get much easier. A couple of years later, she wound up, she gave birth to a child in a New York hotel room who was, there were, then she was arrested. It wasn't clear whether the child had been born alive or dead and so on. She was incarcerated at Bellevue. Uh, eventually her family rescued her and they all moved to Boston where uh, the census of 1900 lists her as a music teacher. Uh, she died, I believe, in the 1920s up in Cambridge. Um, she changed her name, actually, at one point to a more, I think, her to a name like Ellen Gallagher, which, of course, was like an Irish, it was like almost like wearing a disguise if you were an Irish-American. It was such a common name. Um, and Robert Lewis himself, of course, the story of the lynching, partly because Port Jervis itself, like many towns of that type, it, beginning in the mid 20th century, went into a serious decline. The railroad left, a lot of the industry closed down, a new interstate highway bypassed the town. Um, and so there was a great kind of a brain drain out of Port Jervis. And it wasn't the kind of town that you would grow up in and stay. And so a lot of the local oral history was lost, I think. And it became, when I went to Port Jervis in 2018, many people, white and black, who lived only blocks from where the lynching occurred, had never heard of it. They were astonished to hear that, did you ever know about this? That's how successful, I mean, it wasn't, it was just people so much got out of the habit of even speaking of it that over the generations, the story of it was very, became a kind of sketchy rumor only. What has happened though recently in the 2020, after the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis, uh, the Black uh, Black Lives Matter movement in 
Port Jervis, uh, some local young black women created this Black Lives Matter march through the streets of Port Jervis, which was itself amazing. Port Jervis, it's a very, it's a it's a very conservative town historically, and even today. And the, it was a peaceful march, but it was large. And what that the effect that had is, it I found that sort of the town elders, um, who I had approached and others had, had been very reluctant to bring up. They didn't want to talk about Robert Lewis. I found that very interesting that when I first went there, people would say, oh, you should really talk to so-and-so who's lived in the town a long time and knows all about it. But when I would contact that person, they either wouldn't call me back or they would just say, I don't want to, I don't, in other words, they, they weren't interested in it. But after the Black Lives Matter movement, then suddenly I think people realized that this was something that had to be, had to be dealt with. And out of that grew a kind of a local movement to uh, signify it somehow. And last summer, uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, um, the state of New York approved two uh, signs, one for the lynching of Robert Lewis in Port Jervis and another for a lynching that occurred in Newburgh, New York in this, during the Civil War. Both of those, I think probably, the, as far as I know, the only signage of its kind in New York State designating the site of, a, of, a, of, a, of racial violence and a, or a lynching. Uh, those had become more common in the South in recent years, but in New York State, not. So that, in a certain way, I've been glad to see that Robert Lewis, now if you go to Port Jervis, his story is taught in a local high school. There is a picture of him at the local train station and so on, which at least is something I find that I find it encouraging and hopefully there'll be more going forward, a kind of opening of dialogue between the local black community and whites and police and so on. Yeah, I take your point. It's not justice in the traditional sense, but, and it, it's also been 130 odd years, so it's not yeah. really timely either, but it, it's what, it's what we can cling to. And maybe that's hope for the future in terms of, certainly race relations, but maybe democracy and justice as well uh, in a broader sense. Uh, okay, I've got a big question for you that we've been sort of skirting around a little bit here. So we we often think, and I mean this collective we, you know, is in the scholarly, maybe not so much, but in the general public, we think of lynchings as something that happens in the American South, and, and they did, right? I mean, lynchings in Mississippi are far more numerous. There's, there's many of them. It's staggering, in fact. But as we were pointing out here, they happened in the North, too. Your book certainly explains one such lynching. But how prevalent are they in the northern states? No, that's a very good point. And that's that's really what's I think that's sort of the significance in a way of what the whole Port Jervis story was that this, just as you outlined it, lynching was always something that was connected with the 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 deep south louisiana mississippi georgia texas and so on and the idea that these occurred in the north to me the spreading knowledge of that um it also kind of dovetails with our own i guess what i'm trying to say is the oh our own sense of that police brutality in other words the cases of like george floyd um eric garner and many many others this idea that racially motivated police violence is ubiquitous in America. It's not isolated to one particular place. 
I think that was a, for many, many years, that was a sense that these things occurred in, you know, again, Baton Rouge or whatever, but not in northern towns. And I think that was nowadays, I think that's much more understood, much better understood that it can happen anywhere and has. And maybe these historic lynch, these lynchings that occurred many, many years ago, in a way, that's what they serve to do today. They kind of remind us that they, that's always been there and that there were lynchings that occurred in Duluth, in Colorado, in uh, upstate New York, many fewer than in the South, but they did occur and that there was always that, that possibility um, and often driven by similar motivations too on the part of the whites. I think that you you pointed out the sort of the recent and the contemporary significance of this story. Black Lives Matter, the the the, the all too many uh, uh, police brutality incidents and murders in the United States. Uh, but it, it struck me earlier you were saying that there there might be some other parallels too. You mentioned other uh, episodes of violence like mass shootings. You mentioned the January sixth, two thousand twenty uh, insurrection. What I mean, do you, do you think that this um, this case, Robert Lewis's case, but also lynching more generally, perhaps, has something to say about our democracy and, and democracy and violence more generally? Yeah, I think so. I mean, to me, in a certain way, I mean, the January 6th mob and the mob that lynched Robert Lewis, in a certain way, are the same mob because it's white grievance at and resistance to change. Uh, that's what motivated a lot of the lynchings in the 19th century. It was white people uh, upset about new freedoms, new mobility, new rights being given to black people, and also the stirrings of greater independence among white women as well. All of society modernizing, becoming faster, people moving to cities, all these things, these kind of demographic and uh, cultural changes that were upsetting to people. And of course, we can't help but see the echo of that today. That seems to be also motivating a lot of this pushback. We've gotten to the point now where conservatives, they'll basically stop at nothing. I mean, they'll change the laws. They'll, as we know, they'll literally do almost anything to push back against changes, sexual changes, cultural, social, demographic, what have you, that they see as threatening. And in a way, that's, you saw it most, most, uh, I mean, one re thing about the the sort of epidemic of lynching in the late 19th century, it was very much tied to the South's, what they called redemption. In other words, after Reconstruction, as you know, this late 19th century, sort of quasi-religious crusade in the South, you know, that, you know, this is a white man's country, white men will rule. And that's where you get, of course, Jim Crow and voter suppression, a lot of things that would look very familiar to us today were going on, uh, is, were being institutionalized in the South in the 1880s, 1890s, and so on. And so to me, in a way, it's just always this kind of continuum of what this is. It's a kind of know-nothingness, a kind of uh, pushback or resistance to progressive change in the country. And it takes different forms, but it always seems to be much about race and the willingness of what people will do to uh, forestall progress. 
I think your point about change, though, makes it bigger than race, too. And you mentioned things like sexual identity or culture mm -hmm. or even economics and politics. It's all wrapped up in this idea of change, those that want to change and those that don't want to change. Yeah. Um, so I, I think th for that reason, when I was reading your book, I, I just got the the echo of the contemporary throughout it, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you on the show, because that's what that's what a lot of the show aims to do is connect the past with the present. And it seems very easy nowadays to do that. Uh, I wanted to give you one more one more opportunity to speak about um, uh, the town, Port Jervis, um, mm -hmm. and, and particularly about this case going unremembered for, as you say, around 130 years. You've got a theory as to why that happened. And you were starting to mention the town elders of today. Um, do you want to just kind of elaborate on that a little bit and tell us a little bit why you think uh, Robert Lewis's uh, lynching has gone unremembered? Yeah, I mean, I think initially the town, when you go back to the incident itself, went through various sort of steps or stages of reaction to it. Uh, at first, there was this reaction of, you know, it's good that we dealt with this scoundrel in this way. But then when, of course, the national press began to show up and say, what on earth are you doing? The kind of sense of regret and shame of, of what maybe we have, we moved a little too quickly. Maybe this was, and so on and so on, until it eventually evolved into kind of a general kind of a sense of resentment of why are we being picked on? I mean, I've seen this with Southern communities as well. Like, why are you picking on us? Go, go away. Um, so I think there eventually just became this kind of, feeling in the town that this was either best not spoken about because we are ashamed of it, but also I think out of regard for some of the people involved. And I think there was a very strong impulse in that time because a young woman was involved, a white woman, to avoid making the sort of darker aspersions about what might've gone on. As I write in the book, she, her family kind of went on this campaign in a way to have her appear in church. At one point, Lena herself issued a multi-page letter, which was published, I think, with the help, written with the help of their attorney to kind of exonerate her and blame everything on everybody else, basically. And she began appearing dressed in like virginal white <laughs> at St. Mary's Cathedral, whatever it was. They kind of seemed to go on this kind of almost like a publicity campaign. And I think after that, the town then receded in its even sort of whispering across the backyard fence about this case and just decided it was best unspoken of. As I said, then the town itself went through so many, so much economic uh, struggle and, and decline that I'm sure it was just became one more thing that nobody that was best left unmentioned. In fact, I even got a little of that when I first went there. It was a little bit of, why would you do this? Like, haven't we suffered enough? Basically, look at our town. I mean, it's like there's a bunch of empty lots. There's, I mean, at one point in the 1970s, there was a terrible building collapse of an old building, which killed several people, after which the town decided to tear down a lot of its older Victorian architecture. But of course, which then nothing was ever built in its place. So it wasn't the most, the town lost a lot of its, of its, status and even its physical infrastructure and so the idea that you would sort of want to revisit this most un unappealing unsavory story to do with the past i think um kind of just 
dug in. I mean, I found, as I mentioned in the book, I found that the only person I knew who went in the 20th century, who went to the town to find, to sort of revisit the story, came away basically with nothing. He wrote an article for a men's magazine uh, in like 1955. And basically the residents, what his story basically is, is I went to this town, but really nobody would tell me anything. <laughs> and so I thought, that's interesting. Like that was his experience. And so uh, it was already well underway. At that time when he went, there were still people alive who had been present at the time of where they had been young when Robert Louis Lynch. And even they apparently were not willing to be helpful, except with the exception of a couple of, of a couple of local eccentrics who <laughs> volunteered. But but I thought that was very revealing that it took all that time past and uh, and it was just not spoken of. So it just goes to show you how the dust settles very quickly over history. I think people, historians probably find that generally. It's, you know, it's very difficult, very often difficult to track what occurred um, in these instances, uh, especially where there's some, a small tight community where, again, everything is kind of buttoned down a little bit. And, you know, after a few weeks after the Robert Louis lynching, the national correspondents who'd come to town packed up and went home. And after that, the town was just kind of left to take, to see, look after itself, basically. It's a story about memory and forgetting, I think, as well as you point out there. It's um, it's something that maybe the, the reason why we're remembering it more now in the 2020s is because of the racial violence that uh, that sort of seems to have crescendoed. Not like it's ever gone away, but it just right. seems to be reaching the peaks of our public consciousness. Uh, it, the story, Phil, I can't thank you enough because the story itself is not just one that's revealing because of the sectionalism that it talks about or... Uh, you know, the similarities that it might draw to other cases of lynching, but it, it, it's set really in this broader context. And then it, it's really a testament to great research. I don't think, um, as you say, in 1955, other people tried to go back and, and get this detail. You've succeeded in doing it. And I think we all owe you uh, our gratitude for writing this wonderful book. Oh, well, thanks so much. You know, one thing I was going to mention to you, just uh, this is a little off topic, but are you? Did you notice that this recent, just the other day, the judge in Texas who ruled against the birth pill invoked the Comstock Act of, you know, of from what it was like 1887 or something, which apparently is still on the books. It's never been. I mean, you talk about things from the Victorian age of a sexual nature coming forward. They're basically he's relying on that. Oh, there's, I mean, there's been a few cases that I've been talking over. That's one of them. Another one is Neil Gorsuch's invo invocation of the insular cases, which is about American empire. I mean, it, it, there, there seems to be, now maybe I'm looking for it too, to be fair, you know, but uh, we do have a strong connection to this time. And I think your story makes it, you know, ma makes that case really apparent. And so, uh, yeah, I think people are going to be very interested in hearing and, and hopefully picking up and buying a copy of your book. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me, Mike. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.